0: we're excited for this final week of the problem of God. And, um, we have a guest speaker. He's actually on our pastoral team here. It's Nathan Palkovitz. And he's been one of my best friends for, since, uh, we were like six. And, um, he has a, you know, an an incredible heart for God. And he's also somebody who is one of the best critical thinkers I know. And uh, he's an assistant principal at a, a local elementary school, I think in Wilmington. And, um, and so we're excited. I'm going to introduce you now, and then we're going to watch the video, and then he's going to come on up. So um, please be kind to him. Um, he is, you know, he really doesn't like people. So, um, so please, most of the time you find him in the nursery with little kids because he's actually awesome to serve that way too. But, um, but we once in a while let him into the, the main group, and, and he gets to interact. So we're going to watch this video
1: happy to be here today. Uh, It's a little different to be in a room full of adults. Jonathan mentioned that I spend my time in the pre-K room. For me, church means like sitting on the floor, playing with blocks, maybe build a zoo. And the best part about it is unlimited goldfish crackers. So you guys missed snack time. I was here the whole meeting in the grown-up part and you didn't have snack. What's up with that? (laughs) Um, So I'm used to giving maybe a 90-second lesson to about... Ten and twelve kids who are three feet tall. Being up here for half an hour with a room full of grown ups is a little bit more intimidating. So if I'm nervous, that's why. <laughs> I'm happy to be here today. If you've been here for a few weeks, I hope you've enjoyed this series on the problems that people have with coming to God. And I listened to this book uh, during my commute. There's a lot of really good, thoughtful analysis of some of these questions because there are real problems that people have if they consider coming to Jesus if they consider joining a church or, or approaching God in a meaningful way, there's some questions in our minds that are normal to have and, and natural to have because of the world that we live in. So some of the ones that have already been dealt with are God's existence, the problem of science, the problem of evil and suffering, the Bible. What do you make of the Bible? How do you know if it's true or not? If you got to listen to these, I hope you enjoyed them. If not, they are available online. You can download them and listen to them you know, on your own device. You might enjoy that. So hypocrisy is today. Um, when Christian asked me if I would talk about this, I said, sure, I'm a hypocrite. I can talk about this. (laughs) I can speak from experience. Um, and I'll share what I know. And when I'm done, you might be able to qualify for one of these certificate of hypocrisy, your name here. We can recognize you for saying one thing and doing just the opposite. Wouldn't you like to have that? You could put it in a really nice frame. Maybe hang it on the wall next to your family picture, or you could take it to the office, put it up next to your degree. (laughs) Bragging rights, right? All right, I thought we should laugh a little bit, because this is a heavy topic, but I'll stop joking around now. Let's get real. We want to be honest, and I know one of the things that we stand for as a church, uh, one of the things that we work on at City Light, is being welcoming to all people. If you're visiting here, we're glad that you're here, and we thank you for coming, and we want to let you know that you don't have to agree with everything that we believe in order to be welcome here. You're welcome to disagree with us. You're welcome to have a different faith than we have. You're welcome to not have any faith. Um, no matter what you believe, you're welcome here, and we want to talk about what we believe, but we want to do that in a way that's respectful of your views, and we welcome your questions and your dialogue. So. I'm not here to say that hypocrisy is not real, and I'm not here to say that it's not a big deal, because it is. It's a real factor that, that people have to wrestle with if they want to engage with the church. It's a real thing that we need to overcome if we want to, to meet Jesus or, or find out who God is. So I want to start in humility today and, and just say that if you have been hurt by the church, if you have been hurt by either people or groups of people who are hypocritical or who have acted that way, that we're sorry that that has happened. Um, I know that me saying that can't make everything right for you. And some of these wounds are deep and some of these painful experiences are very real. And we're going to be honest about that today. We're going to be real about it. We're not going to pretend that it didn't happen and we're not going to gloss over it. And it's also okay for you to have concerns about the impact of the church historically. You know, if you look back sort of through the ages at what the church has done and the impact that it's had, it's okay to have questions about that, and it's okay to have concerns about some of these historical facts. Um, We do, too. So we acknowledge at City Light, we don't pretend that church is perfect. And when I say church, I don't mean just this church. I mean sort of the church globally and worldwide, the church as an institution and an organization, and the church sort of throughout history. I'm not just talking about one group of people. Um, hopefully you won't find a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in our church, although you know none of us are perfect, so there, there is some hypocrisy here. I'm sure that's true. But we strive to be genuine and we strive to be real and humble. But we acknowledge that there are problems in this individual church and there are problems in the church as a whole. And so we want to talk about some of those things today. And I've got two goals in sort of engaging with this topic. I want to maybe take a slightly different perspective on some of the historical atrocities of the church. And we'll get into that a little bit more and talk about what that means. But I also want to think about some of the current hypocrisy that's in the church and very personal examples that you might have experienced And think about what does that need to mean for your relationship with Jesus? And what does that need to mean if you're interested in sort of getting through some of these roadblocks, how can you do that? So let's look first at some of the historical atrocities of the church. They're real, and I'm not going to pretend they're not. Um, Unfortunately, there's been some things that have happened in the history of the church that no current Christian or representative of Jesus will be proud of. Um, but I do think that some of the way that we understand these things has been based on a cultural exaggeration of what has happened over time. In our culture, there's a narrative that goes something like this. You know, people like to say that the church has killed millions of innocent people throughout history. And, you know, we live in what some people call a postmodern society where There's this perspective in society that, you know, we understand what religion was and the purpose it served in humanity, but we're beyond that now, we've outgrown it, we don't need it anymore, and we can now feel free to make comments about the church and what it used to be and what it used to do. And it's easy and it's popular to make comments like this and to look back on what the church did or even look at some of the things that the church stands for now, the modern church, and think, you know what, it's all bad, it's all terrible. And it's easy to exaggerate that, and sometimes as a church member, I hear some of these claims and some of these things that people say about the church, and I don't know how to question it, and I don't know how to have an intelligent conversation about it, but it's important to do that. And in his book, uh, Mark Clark decides to sort of peel back some of the layers here and look at at some of the things that have happened throughout history and put them in, in perspective. Now... I want to give a disclaimer. I'm not a historian, all right? And I don't claim to be an expert on church history. As I read through Mark Clark's book and and looked at some of his numbers that he puts out in talking about the the number of people killed in the Crusades and during the Inquisition and the witch trials, to be honest, when I first heard them, I didn't believe them. So I Googled it. (laughs) And I learned very quickly it's not something you can quickly look up and understand and wrap your head around completely. There's a lot of different perspectives out there. But in... You know, when you go to Wikipedia, which is 100% true, right? Um, No, I I tried to find some sources that are somewhat well-established and reliable. They've done some actual research based on fact and history. Um, You know, some of the numbers that Mark Clark comes up with seem to be viable numbers. Um, And again, I'm not an expert, but in taking what he says at face value, there's some different perspective to take on the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the witch trials. And one example is the witch trials. You know, and anybody read the Da Vinci Code? There's thinking in there that, that during the witch trials, millions of people were killed, all right, in Europe, and in America, thousands of people were killed. But if you look at it a little bit deeper, you know, there's no claim that that is real. When Dan Brown wrote that, he wasn't acting like it was history. He was, he was writing fiction. But we've accepted that into our cultural narrative and in sort of our postmodern thought, where it's okay to just badmouth the church it's easy to accept that and to forget, hey, you know what? That was fiction. Uh, but let's look a little deeper. The Salem witch trials, which happened in Massachusetts, you know, our own country, early in our history, a lot of people think thousands of thousands were killed. The number is 19. 19 people were sentenced to death. Several more died in captivity, but under 25 people died in those witch trials. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have heard that thousands of people died in that time in history? I know I thought that thousands of people had and it's easy to believe that because it's taken for granted. And please know that I'm not downplaying the importance of these 25 people's lives. You know, for them, this was tragic. And for their families, it was unthinkable. You know, for their friends, for their, their groups of people around them, um, it's not okay what happened. And I, I don't excuse it. And I think that as a church, you know, the church bears responsibility for that. So I don't downplay that, and I don't pretend that it's okay. But it's also not millions. And so, you know, we need to question a little bit and maybe have the courage to push back on some of the cultural narrative that's so easy for us to take for granted. So the witch trials were one small chapter in history. The Crusades are a little bigger and a little harder to tackle. But one thing that's important to understand is that as part of our cultural narrative and the current way of thinking about church history, we blame the Crusades on church, all right? And there's some truth to that, but it's also true that what was happening during the Crusades was bigger than just church, all right? There were nations involved. There were empires and kingdoms being built and falling and crashing. There were families and militaries involved. This was not just like a church that grabbed swords and ran out the door, all right, there's, there's more to it than that. And so the church had a real role in what happened, and the church bears much of the responsibility for what happened, but it's not just the church, and it's not just people. I don't think it's people that truly represented Jesus in a way that Jesus would appreciate, <laughs> who went out on the Crusades and killed so many people. All right, The numbers in, in the problem of God are 200,000 to 250,000 people were killed in 500 years of crusades, all right? I tried to verify that. I tried to fact-check it, and I really couldn't, so I apologize. I I wanted to have some source other than that book to quote, there's a lot of complicated numbers out there, and there's a lot of ways of accounting, and I don't know how to wrap my head around it, so I'm going to be very honest about that. But let's assume it's a higher number. Let's assume it's 250,000 people in 500 years. That's a lot, all right? And I'm not downplaying that, and I'm not saying that it's Okay? Uh, but I want to put that number there and look at it. It's not millions, but it's also its not okay. So I'm going to speak in some broad strokes here. We're painting in broad strokes. We're, we're oversimplifying and overgeneralizing, which are both dangerous. <laughs> um, but to just sort of zoom out a little bit and look at some of the trends of human thought throughout history. During and after things like the Crusades and the Inquisition. I think that people wanted to separate themselves from the church. They were looking at some of these problems in the church. They were looking at some of the violence that the church committed. They said, we can do better than this. Let's take a break from God. Let's believe in humans. All right? Let's believe in science. There were some really complicated and sophisticated, sort of atheistic ways of thinking that developed out of that. And I'm not going to pretend to summarize all of them here. But out of those, you know, there's a lot of history that we know that was more recent. Communist Russia and China, Nazi Germany, the Khmer Rouge, and Cambodia. You know, these are well-documented and well-researched atrocities in the past century, all right? And those account for over 100 million deaths in 100, 000, in 100 years. And so, you know, it's ironic, and I... I think I put my slides out of water here. It's irony that people who decided they could do better than church and sort of took God out of the picture, established these new and, and better ways of thinking, they thought, that ended up being responsible for a lot more deaths than the church ever was or ever could be. And so just a little simple math, if the church killed 250,000 people in 500 years, And if atheist regimes killed 100 million in 100 years, atheist regimes kill 2,000 times faster than Christian regimes. (laughs) All right? So pick your poison, which you like better. Um, And I'm sorry for talking about this in a lighthearted way. It's not lighthearted. These are are real lives that we're talking about that were lost, and, and that's not okay. But I believe that when we take God out of the picture, when we, take, when we try to do better than God, we're left with something that's not better. We're left with something that's worse. And when you look at the church history, even though it's complicated by politics and military and different agendas, what we had under the church is better than what we had without the church. All right? If you're just looking at the rate of killing. No killing is okay. I'm not, not downplaying this, especially in the name of Jesus. If you look at Jesus and what he stands for, none of that would be okay with him. But maybe the problem isn't God. Maybe the problem is when churches become powerful institutions, when churches get mixed up in militarized governments. Maybe that's part of the problem. But that's not what Jesus wanted church to be. All right, so let's look at Jesus. Instead of looking at church history, let's look at Jesus. All right? I don't excuse what the church has done, but I don't think Jesus does either. If you open your Bible and read, it's very evident that Jesus and the life that he lived and the way that he expected his followers to live was very different than some of the things that the church has done throughout history. Jesus was a peaceful person. He didn't hurt people. He never armed a group of people. He never militarized an organization. Jesus served poor people. He healed sick people. He built relationships with everyday humans. You know, he could have gone into the power structures of his day and, like, networked and strategized and tried to take over. That's not what he was about. He went to sit in the dirt and talk to people on the street. You know, he went into marketplaces and and ate lunch with people and talked to them there. and he died peacefully. He carried that way of thinking to the grave, literally. Jesus had opportunity, and I think he had the means to protect himself. When he was telling his followers, hey guys, I'm about to be arrested, and it's not going to end well. (laughs) They didn't like that, and they were trying to encourage him to, to fight. And he said, if I wanted to, I could call on thousands of angels. They would protect me. He also had friends that were willing to fight for him. You know, we hear the Stories story is about Peter. Peter undoubtedly was one of Jesus' most hot-headed disciples. <laughs> he was willing to fight to the death for Jesus. On the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter took out a sword and started fighting. And Jesus said, stop. We're not doing that. Jesus did not physically resist his arrest or his torture or his killing. He was a peaceful person. And so I don't think if we look at Jesus, I don't think we can justify any of the violent And judgmental and angry things that the church has done. In the book of Galatians, in the Bible, there's a description of of what the Holy Spirit is like. And the Holy Spirit represents Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us to relate to Jesus. And it describes the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the work that he does, it's the evidence of Jesus that we should see in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. And I mean, look at these words love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self control. And we're urged to keep in step with the Spirit. If we're keeping in step with the Spirit, I don't think we'll be arming ourselves and going out, killing those who disagree with us. I don't think we can justify the violence of the church. So just checking in, we're halfway through. <laughs> I want to put some of the historical atrocities of the church in perspective. They're real, and they're not okay. I don't think they're okay with Jesus. I don't think that they represent who he is or what he stood for when he was alive on earth. I don't think that they represent what God is about today. And so I would never justify them, but I also want to push back a little bit on some of the cultural narrative that says that the church has killed millions over time. I think it's, there's some layers to that that you need to look through. And there are informed ways to do that. So you know, check some of the facts. Look some things up. Talk to some people who, who know history. And, and just question the narrative that we're fed. Because it's easy to accept things without, without pushing back on it. So I want to look a little bit more at personal hypocrisy right now. And I want to do that in a way that's mindful of the fact that, that you may have been hurt by people who either represent Jesus or claim to and who have not been true to what they say that they believe. And if you have some of that pain in your own life, that's real. And we acknowledge that. Um, And I want to talk about it in a way that's respectful. So, anytime that someone from outside of the church thinks about what life should look like inside the church, there's pretty well formed ideas and pretty high standards. And that's not true just for the church either. You know, I work in a school, Jonathan mentioned that. And um, it's funny, there's a very clear idea. Outside of a school, about what school employees should act like, and I have a somewhat humorous example of that. I was I was in a very difficult meeting with a family that felt like their child was being mistreated, and the dad just lost his temper in the meeting. I mean, he was screaming in my face to the point that when he was done, I like, had to clean my glasses off. He was threatening physical violence. He was mad, unbelievably mad, and. When he was done, you know, I'm a counselor by training. I, my strategy was to listen and calm him down. And, and thankfully, it didn't get physical. As he calmed himself down, I think he kind of realized, hey, I, was, I stepped over the line there. I better dial it back. And as he was trying to justify some of his behavior, he was saying, you can't act like that because you work for the school, but I'm okay. To, I can do that. And, I'm, and he walked out, and there's no consequences. But he was right. If I did that as a school employee, I'd be fired instantly as just a parent in the school, he can do that and walk out and there's no consequences. So there's this concept in the public about what someone who represents an institution has to do. There's a higher standard if you represent a school than there is if you don't. There should be a higher standard of people in the church than people outside the church. right? There's this concept in the public that if you're in the church, you got to do better than me if I'm out of the church. right? There's this expectation. So in the book, The Problem of God, it talks about a poll that was done examining lifestyle choices inside and outside of the church. Gambling, pornography, stealing, gossip, fortune-telling, all right, hurting people, drug abuse, lying, getting revenge, and getting drunk. All these lifestyle choices. It looked at the rates and their frequency in the church and their frequency outside the church. And guess what? There's no difference. So on all these moral categories. People who are Christians are doing these things just as often as people who are not Christians. And I do have to admit, there's one category where there's a difference. Recycling. (laughs) (laughs) I hate that. (laughs) And I can't get too sidetracked because that's not what this talk is about. But if Christians know that God made the world, shouldn't we take care of it? (laughs) All right, I got to move on before I get too (laughs) sidetracked. All right, so if there's no statistical difference between Christians and non-Christians, what does that mean? One explanation would be Christians are hypocrites. They don't do what they say they should. They don't do what they tell me I should do. They're phonies. I'm not going there. I can't be part of that. And that's the reaction that a lot of people have if they're outside of the church and they're looking into the church and they're seeing those people are not different than me. They must be fake. But I want to look a little deeper today and I want to question that assumption There is real hypocrisy in the church, and I don't deny that, and I don't downplay it. But I think there's more to the story than that. Because if you look in the church, there's a lot of different kinds of people there. Some of the people in the church are genuine followers of Jesus. And I've been privileged to know in my lifetime some people who have dedicated their life to knowing and living for Jesus. And their lives are different. And there are true moral differences between them and people who don't follow Jesus. You know, Some people have successfully lived life to a higher standard. And if you're checking things out in the church, and if you're wondering if there's anything to it, and if you, you're wondering, hey, you know, who is Jesus? Is it worth knowing him? I would encourage you to find somebody who has spent a lifetime following him and knowing him, because there is a real difference, and they can share something of substance with you. All right, There are some genuine followers of Jesus in the church, There's also some cultural Christians, and what I mean by that is people who just do it for the status, all right? They come to church, attend events, maybe pay some dues, they they pat themselves on the back, they get a little feeling of status from that, they belong to a club, right? It means something to them. But when they're not in church, they don't live differently, all right? They're not overly concerned with the moral standards. The church is also full of people who are exploring and questioning, and that's good. There should be explorers and questioners in the church. And there should be people who are struggling in the church. I was thinking about a hospital. People build hospitals and they make them extremely clean and they staff them with experts in health, all right? People who have long titles and high degrees in in health and well being and they know how to take care of themselves. And hospitals are about health, right? So you should staff them with people who are healthy and know how to be healthy and then you shouldn't let anybody sick in, right? Obviously not. Hospitals have to welcome the sick because that's what they're for, they're for healing. Church is the same way, all right? We hopefully have some people here who know what it means to know Jesus and who know what it means to live life according to the the standards that Jesus sets for us, but then we need to welcome people who aren't there yet. We need to welcome people who will never be there and aren't interested in being there. We need to welcome everybody in church. And so it's going to mean that there's a, a mix of people in church, and that's okay, and I put hypocrites on the list because some people in church are hypocrites, and I'm not going to pretend that's not true. So this list is here because I want you to look at who's in church and realize that that complicates a little bit the fact that there's no statistical difference between churchgoers and non-churchgoers. It's easy to hear that and assume, all right, it's fake, I'm not going there. But there's more to it than that. All right, and If you look a little deeper and you know peel back some of the layers, I think you'll see that, that there are some people of substance in church. That doesn't mean that they're perfect because everybody makes mistakes. But the average doesn't have to be different for there to be some real substance to what what Christians actually believe. All right? The other thing about this is that Jesus, I think, recognizes the difference in different groups of people. And when he was on earth, he had some very harsh words for hypocrites. when he started his formal ministry, when he went sort of coming out of the shadows and into the public eye a little bit, his first messages were to the existing church leaders. And he was not easy on them. (laughs) He called them out on their hypocrisy in a way that took real courage and conviction, and he was not letting them get away with the low standards they had set for themselves. So Jesus had a, a way of calling out hypocrites, but he also extended mercy to sinners. He went and spent time with people who were looked down on by the church and he shared his life with them and he shared his time with them and he expressed his love to them. He didn't make them feel dirty. He didn't make them feel untouchable or unworthy. He shared love with them in a way that was genuine and real. But he also set a high moral standard for people who are serious about following him and about making a lifestyle change. If you look at the bar that Jesus sets morally, it's high. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't allow failure, and it doesn't mean that he will condemn you if you mess up, but it means that if you want to be serious about knowing him long term, it's going to require some transformation of your character. So... Jesus speaks differently to different groups of people. To hypocrites, he's got harsh corrections. To people struggling with sin, he's got love. To people looking to make a lifestyle change, he's got high standards. And it's interesting because all of this is captured in one example in the book of John. If you look at chapter 11 in John, it's a fascinating story, and we're not going to take time to dig deep into it, but there's layers here that you should explore on your own if you have some time. There's a woman who was Caught in the act of adultery. Um, Scholars who read this think that that the church, these church leaders, caught her in the act. There had to be somebody else there, right? I don't know why she was the only one dragged to Jesus. That could be a whole other teaching, right? Why is she caught and he's not? There's something wrong with that. Um, But it seems like they set up a trap, and there's questions to be asked there too. If you're religious leaders and you know that adultery is bad, why are you setting a trap for it? Why didn't you prevent it? Why didn't you offer to help either of the people who were involved? Why didn't you help them find a way not to go there? All right, so there's a lot of questions to ask, and we're not going to get into all those. But anyway, she's caught in the act. They drag her to Jesus, who's out talking to some people on the street, and they tell him, hey, Jesus, this lady was caught in the act, and the law says she needs to be stoned. The Old Testament law really did call for her to die by stoning. And they asked Jesus, what are you going to do? They were trying to trap him. They knew that if he said, we're not going to follow what the Old Testament says, he'd be in trouble. But they also knew that because of his heart of love and mercy, he would not kill this lady. So they're trying to set a trap for Jesus. And we know what he said. This is a saying that's worked its way into our culture. Let the one without sin throw the first stone. You know, by this point in Jesus' life, I think that people knew that he was a prophet, and I think that they knew that he could tell what they were thinking. So some of these guys are probably thinking about, oh, you know what? I remember what I did last week while my wife was uh, visiting her sister. If I pick up a stone, is Jesus going to call me out on that? These people knew that Jesus could call them out on their own sins. And so they didn't pick up a stone. Well, the Bible says one by one they walked away. And as I walked away, Jesus turned to the woman who's the only one left. She was undeniably guilty. She deserved, according to the Old Testament law, to die. But Jesus said, I do not condemn you. However, he didn't stop there. He said, go and sin no more. And he had a conversation with her that challenged her to do better for herself. While he might have been justified in condemning her, he didn't because he loved her too much. But he also didn't want her to keep doing what she was doing—that was self-destructive and damaging. He wanted her to do better for herself. And so, within this one little story, we've got Jesus shutting down the hypocrites who want to throw stones. We've got him extending love and mercy to someone who was caught in sin, but also challenging her to do better. And so, there's a lot of layers here that you know it pays to, to look a little deeper at these layers. So in closing, you know, we acknowledge at City Light that hypocrisy is real and it's a problem. But it doesn't have to keep you from Jesus. Because hypocrisy is not about Jesus, it's about the people that that claim or try to follow him. And so if you believe that the church has problems, we agree with you. It's true. But please just consider that this might not reflect on Jesus. And that it might not mean that you can't approach him in a way that's meaningful with other people who are also trying to know him. So if you're willing to think about that, if you're willing to to question a little bit the views on hypocrisy that you've had before, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for considering what Jesus stands for.
0: All right, let's stand up together. We're going to um, head into our response time. And, um, and Nathan, thank you for those words. They were, they were really, um, really powerful and insightful. And, um, you know, I, I do think the, the issue with hypocrisy is real. And if you talk to people outside the church, that's one of their biggest objections. And, and Nathan, thank you for helping us think differently on that. And, um, you know, I think that we all, like Rebecca said in, in our time of worship, we're all like, we're all broken you know and the, the church is the whole world's full of broken people and that's that's why we need Jesus and um, I'm gonna pray you know I, I think I, I'm just feeling like there might be some people who have been hurt by the institution of church who have been hurt by organized religion who have been um, rejected or shut down or judged or you know felt marginalized or whatever and, and I'm just gonna pray that God would heal our hearts um, you know and that we could you know Rediscover the heart of Jesus for us, you know, and and so if, if you're somebody who has struggled with church in the past and and feeling like you know you've been hurt by hypocrisy, um, I think Jesus is here to heal you today, and He wants you to like maybe give like a, open the door to a tiny crack to let His healing in. Um, so Jesus, we pray that you would you would heal anybody who's struggled with that, Lord. Anybody who's been hurt, anybody who's have, has a hard time trusting church leadership or, or, you know, the organized religion or whatever, Jesus, let it all be stripped away and let it just be you here right now with your people. And God, I pray that if there is bitterness or unforgiveness or things that we're carrying, burdens we're carrying around because of this, that you could lift them off now for each one of us, Lord, and that, that you could lead us, God, into a place of freedom, into a place of being able to trust you, being able to know you, and, and know your heart for all of us, God. And so thank you for this day. Thank you for this, this whole series, for, um, for so much to think about, so much growth, God. And, and we just pray that you would just work in City Light, Lord, throughout this week as we think about and reflect on what, what we've heard and learned. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, what really stood out was that Galatians passage that Nathan shared was the, you know, the fruit of the spirit is all these things. And um and God, that's our heart and that's a heart at city light to be able to to be, you know, uh, you know, more and more like you that we grow and grow more and more and reflect your love and your your kindness and your gentleness and your faithfulness, God. And we know Lord there's all things, you know, in us that that sometimes don't measure up and that's why we need you more and more. And so, God, we just pray, continue to work in our hearts, God, that we wouldn't cover things up, that we wouldn't walk out this door and and live, you know, hypocritically, God. We don't want to reflect you in a, in a poor way. And so, God, I pray that we'll be real. I pray that we'll be real with each other and that we would be able to walk out um, honest about who we are and, and honest about where we need you in our lives. So, Jesus... We thank you for this day, we thank you for this gathering, we thank you for what you're doing in each one of our lives. Lord, I thank you for every person in this place, and that you would continue to be with us, God, throughout this week, and that we could reach out to you, and that we could invite you in to be the center of what we're doing, and experience your grace, your blessing, your love. We are grateful for all that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, guys.